0: RDV ECMO. A quick preface for this episode. This is number 73 and it's amazing. It's my interview with Jan Blolovec about his hyperinvasive trial that he just presented this week at ACC. Um, I put together a a conclusion, a whole separate podcast at the end of this, just so we can have the the salient points so you can get to kind of the conclusions. And so, just be aware that this is the, the full interview with Jan and then immediately after that is some conclusions that can give you some pearls on how to how to move forward with this.
1: Alright, with that, let's get it going. If you are able to say yes, meaning putting patients on ECMO during the CPR, you have to learn how to say no. Welcome to ED ECMO. Welcome to ED ECMO. <laughs>
0: this is ED ECMO. All right, ED ECMO. it's Zach Shiner, and it is May, almost June of 2021. And this has been another great month in eCPR, fantastic month. And before we get into that, I want to kind of introduce you to you a pillar of ECMO that we've never had on the show. Jan Balolovec, thank you for joining us today.
1: Thank you for inviting me.
0: So Jan is a cardiologist from Prague. He wrote the ELSO chapter on eCPR. He is the president of EuroELSO. And he, he and his crew are the primary reason that this month is yet another unbelievably exciting month in eCPR. Jan presented his data at ACC this month or this last week on the hyperinvasive trial. Jan, thank you so much for those results. Thank
1: you for doing that study. Okay. So, uh, but Jan, I think you don't know what you are thinking for. And uh, this was uh, seven years of study three years of preparing things and it actually totally destroyed my life. So um, <laughs> I almost lost my family. I lost all the hopes. And uh, at the end we have a study. Uh, we have some results. As you know, the study was taught by the SMB and um, I think it's, uh, it's interesting. It's very provocative. Uh, I truly believe in, in ACPR. Uh, I'm doing this for 10 years almost. And um I have a lot of experience from what we did, how we did it. Uh, Next time I would do, of course, better than I did before. But um, uh, I have to say that the study showed me how important it is to prepare everything many, many, many months before and how important it is to be uh, very um, pragmatic first and then systematic and also consistent with in what you are doing, so it's um, it's been about that. Uh, it's been full of emotions. It's been full of uh, terrible stories. Uh, very ethically difficult decisions. Uh, ethically borderline decisions also. And as I said before, I, I recall a lot of crazy situations in which I randomized patients, in which I. Um, left family to go for, for patients, to go to cannulae and um, that was the study and uh, I think uh, when I get older I and I recall those uh, whole um, adventures we had, I, I hope I'll write a book about that. <laughs> oh yeah, well
0: that's that's actually a good way to start this all out, the realistic nature of doing research and the realistic nature of proving something that you believe in uh, I'm just going to jump into kind of the the awesome aspects of this of this presentation. They did a grouped therapy, so they put things together involving early transport, mechanical chest compressions, pre-hospital cooling, and then ECPR, and put that all together and, and compared it to a standard group of patients that did not get that. And I think that's probably what you're alluding to with this more these ethical considerations. And out of 250 patients. of the people who got the hyperinvasive approach survived neurologically intact survivorship and only 22% of the patients who had the standard therapy uh, in that study. So pretty impressive, pretty impressive results.
1: Yeah. I think, uh, yeah, results are good. And uh, they are good uh, from the overall point of view, because uh, what is unique on our study or what I consider to be unique first that we, we kept, uh, uh, and we tried not to be biased, anyhow. So how we did that? Uh, we randomized patients drink ongoing CPR on the scene, which is uh, pretty difficult, actually, uh, because you have a very few informations on what, what going on. What, what's going on? As you know, when you talk the first time with the crew on site, that they come somewhere, there's somebody in cardiac arrest. Uh, bystanders are performing chest massage and they start with ACLS, and then within 15 minutes on, the, on, on average, they don't get the ROS and they call you. So they have a very limited number of information basically. So what we wanted to know during those short phone calls we had and, um, and we trained uh, those phone calls in the so-called pre-simulation and simulation phase we had before uh, starting the randomized trial. We we trained to, to be sure that the cardiac arrest was witnessed and sometimes it was not, despite the fact we got information it was. We, we were asking about uh, some vital signs, about the pupils, about etco 2 about uh, circumstances, uh, about a very few details uh, of the history of what happened before, whether the patient had a chest pain or not, and that's about it. Not more information you can get. And the patients were randomized electronically, so no envelopes, uh, no block randomization. So we could never say what kind of arm the patient was going to be in. So, and the randomization system was done really well. So sometimes we had one patient in one arm and three patients in the other arm. Sometimes we had five patients in the same arm uh, right after another. So it was really, uh, you could never estimate was going to be in that. So that was the first uh, unique thing. And the second, you you jumped into the results. So we had overall 27% of survivors, but survivors after half a year, 180 days with normal or minimal neurological deficits or CPC one or two, basically healthy people and, uh, or at least at home, taking care for themselves. And if you Consider the length of CPR they had, and it was on average 46 minutes of CPR in the standard arm and 58 minutes, so longer because they all were transported in the hyperinvasive arm or or all except for one. Uh, So this is very long CPR. So if you consider that we had such a high survival half a year after can compare to paramedic two trial with survival around three percent, or other trials with average survival maybe five to ten percent. Uh, it's good, and the reason for that is uh, that first we are small city or middle-sized city, one point twenty-five million. We have one dispatch center for the whole city. We are cardiac center in uh, in the middle of the town. Um, We have got um, a very high percentage of bystander bystander CPR generally, so it's more than 80% generally for all cardiac arrests, and it was 99% uh, in patients randomized to study. We have a very high percentage of telephone-assisted CPR meaning that uh, the dispatcher is actually instructing bystanders on the scene what they have to do. He's asking and he's telling them over the cell phone what to do. He instructs them to put a cell phone on the voice and then telling them, okay, start massage and do you feel any resistance or whatever. And uh, and then we we have a crews and the emergency service who perform excellent excellent CPR. And if I... If I go to the byproduct we had, actually. So, uh, when we counted, when we looked at our historical data when uh, designing the trial in 2010, actually, we we expected the survival in patients with this refractory cardiac arrest to be somewhere between 5 and 10%. So, I put into my power analysis uh, 10% survival in the standard arm. And I estimated, yes, we might. You know, improved this to 30% by the hyperinvasive approach. So we were right, we improved to 30% or over over 30% in the hyperinvasive arm. But due to all this training, due to all this uh, very precise type of care, and it should be mentioned that all basically all patients in the standard arm who uh, got a ROSC on scene, were transported to hospital. Some of them, you know, arrested again during the transport later, but all of them went to CAT lab immediately. So we, we didn't wait for stable roles. We didn't wait for anything else. We just took them all to CAT lab and all, all with the coronary angio and PCI, if appropriate. So um, despite the fact it was a standard arm, they had a very high level of care in these turnaround, resulting in 22% survival which is really high. So, and I was saying it was very difficult sometimes uh, to resist to emergency service personnel because they knew how our patients survived in the hyperinvasive arm. It was very difficult to resist to crossovers. They were keen to transport the patients. They didn't want to stay on, on the scene and wait for the rows. So therefore, we also had some crossover, which was very low, actually eight uh, percent. So it's not too much if you compare it to other, to other similar studies. Um, so what I'm saying that the main byproduct was that by training, by intensive care, and um, by regular uh, talking with with the crews and members of emergency service, we we achieved uh, to more than twice higher survival in the standard arm. So actually, we could not show the difference, (laughs) but not because the hyperinvasive approach would not work, but because we improved such the standard arm that it was difficult to to show by the intention to treat analysis, um, the difference.
0: Yeah, so many amazing points in there that I wanna wanna get back to. Um, Before we kind of dive into some of those results, how did you, you said 10 years ago, you said 2010 actually, yeah. What did you do at that time to get yourself, get your frog up to speed to just get the trial started? What was your, what
1: was your initial training? We started with the ECMO program in 2007. Uh, then we started the regular ECMO program. I'm a, I'm a coordinator of our ECMO team in the central university hospital. We are the biggest ECMO center in the country, maybe in, in the central Europe. And um, so and in, and I actually know exactly uh, where where this all started. It was in two thousand and six actually in two thousand and six it was on Tuesday and uh, we had a uh, we had a uh, young lady being uh, brought to hospital uh, under under um, uh, just compressions under CPR. I took her to unit I resuscitated resuscitated her for two hours and she died. And during the during the CPR it was a young lady twenty seven years old. Mm-hmm. And I knew she has some metabolic problem. We could not find at the moment what was it, but we tried to stimulate her. Everything was available at that time, except for ECMO. And she died. And at the end, we, we found uh, she was intoxicated with the Jackson from some kind of uh, tea she bought at the market or somewhere. It's not important. important thing is that there was a case I said, okay, so we have to find something. To save those people because we knew she's completely healthy she was actually riding a bike during the weekend before her cardiac arrest on the mountain so I, I knew she was completely healthy she was uh, she had some problem which caused re- uh, refractory cardiac arrest and i knew if i had at that time some device to keep her alive profusion alive i would solve the problem and I said, okay. So we have to find a device or method or anything that will keep our patients alive for a couple hours, maybe. And in some of them, we will solve the, the cause of cardiac arrest, whatever it is. Fifty percent of our cases was acute coronary syndromes. Uh, Twenty other percent of cases was uh, chronic coronary disease and ischemia. 10 other cases, uh, 10% of other cases was heart failure, some pulmonary embolisms, very few metabolic, because we try to pick up presumably cardiac causes. And uh, those are exactly patients where you can fix something. You need the time and you you need kind of uh, quiet circumstance to to make it. Uh, We started actually with opening coronary arteries on Lucas. we started uh, first um, with the mechanical CPR. So patients were brought to cath lab, under CPR. We kept them on lucas. We opened arteries, and we had some survivors. But it was not uh, not a way um, because they usually came too late. It was long. It took us twenty minutes to open the artery sometimes. And I said, okay. So if we are able to do this within twenty minutes, so why won't we put a patient on ECMO and then open it? So this was much more effective, actually, for the, in terms of organ perfusion. So this was a start. And then we, we had a couple of cases um, that uh, survived very long CPRs. And we said, OK, so it's possible to survive 60 minutes of CPR, definitely. We don't know whether there is some patients that might benefit more. We'll find that out. And uh, we trained for two years. We trained the crews uh, and the emergency service. So I had a lot well, of workshops for them like three, four times per year. Uh, then I trained my team at the camp lab. I trained my team at the unit. And then we started with the mid patients. We had so called uh, pre simulation simulation phase. Uh, it meant that in the pre simulation phase, we took all the patients in and treated them. And in the simulation phase, we tried to simulate kind of pseudo-randomization. And after all this, uh, that we knew that we are able to uh, come over to hospital within 30 minutes and we know how to cannulate patients quickly, effectively, how to call the team to be on site fast with all uh, members of the team because it's teamwork. So it was a cannulating person, was intensive as it was perfusion perfusionist. It was, it was uh, you know cath lab nurses, ICU nurses, and data manager mainly. It was just persons staying there and writing all the data to be sure that we keep uh, keep all data available. And then we started randomization. So. This took us almost three years in this preparation phase, and it was important. And then, still, we had a learning curve during the start of the study. We had more crossovers within the first thirty patients than uh, in the rest of the study, actually. So, Sorry, say
0: that one more time. You had more.
1: We had more patients crossed over. Crossed over, yeah. During, during the start of the study, we were, on, and then, then I realized if we if we cross over to you know, too many patients, we'll lose the study results. So. I had to explain to my colleagues that, um, and it was very difficult, and therefore I mentioned the ethical issues of the study. I said, I'm, okay, we have we have to let some patients die to prove it works. <laughs> if we don't it's do so it. So tough, so tough. Yeah, it's very tough. If we don't do it, we won't prove it works, and we cannot do it. And that's what actually happened because if you look to the results and uh, during the short ACC presentation, I did, didn't show the results of the crossovers, but there were, there was 11 crossovers from the standard to hyperinvasive and, and five of them survived normal neurologic outcomes. So if I, if I count the as treated analysis or per protocol analysis, this is highly significantly better uh, in, in favor of hyperinvasive approach. So
0: let me just reiterate that, because I think that is a key part of this entire podcast. And that is that, that Jan's group did not show sig- uh, clinical significance uh, with his data. However, when you look at the patients that crossed over, 50% of them survived. And so this makes that 22% of the standard arm look less impressive, and it shows that this that even though we can't isolate one member, one part of this group therapy, that ECMO probably had a significant effect in that area.
1: Yeah, it had. We, uh, we, we showed a significant result in, in the secondary outcomes in the neurological recovery within 30 days. Which is usually a primary outcome, 30 day survival in, in the resuscitation studies is a very usual primary outcome. And what we also showed is, and I'm going to publish that in other post hoc analysis, is that um, we actually cannot uh, use the 30 day survival or 30 day neurological outcome as a, as a main outcome of the study, because we had a, quite a few patients actually who developed their neurological outcome and who improved later after 30 days, and they ultimately recovered. So uh, if you looked at our neurologic outcome, we had a um, very uh, large difference in in favor of hyperinvasive approach in, in 30 days of the neurologic outcome. And we also had, besides this crossover group, we had a, uh, a very uh, large difference in those resuscitated for more than 45 minutes. And that's exactly what we expected, actually. And what was my um, my thought and my um, actually aim to show my hypothesis is that I hoped that we would not harm the patients by transporting them to hospital. Uh, so we show that uh, in cardiac arrest cases, uh, below thirty minutes of CPR, no difference in number of survivors. In cardiac arrest cases, 30 30 to 45 minutes of CPR, no difference in number of survivors. But the main difference and main value added by the hyperinvasive approach was those patients who were truly refractory. So they were resuscitated for more than 45 minutes and they survived much, much better. And if you look to results, so we have... um, uh, 20 uh, survivors in the hyper invasive group, um, and six survivors in the standard group. and in, in those who were resuscitated for more than 45 minutes, but
0: yeah i i looked at I looked at that data part yeah. in there, and that was super fascinating to me, also, because of the. I mean, you just look at how did you. How did you? When we start looking at forty-five minutes of standard compressions, what made the paramedics or what made the EMS service go forty-five minutes on those patients
1: versus only thirty minutes versus fifteen minutes on the other ones? Uh, they just resuscitated them. They, they they feel they felt that they uh, you know the patients were uh, were you know. They were indicated for CPR, so they, they wanted to get a ROSC, and they, they knew that if they if they work intensively for 30, 45 minutes, they might get a ROSC. We had survivors after such a long CPR, so they didn't give up, and that's important. So they didn't give up. If you if you compare to other studies, uh, you know, or sustained, they give up after 30 minutes. And as you know, if you have a VF, you shouldn't give up until you have, the uh, you know, other rhythm than VF. So uh, they were resuscitated long and i was glad for that because I, I couldn't be accused that we are not resuscitating for enough time the standard group we were not uh, kind of uh, letting the standard group we really tried to save them and we did and if you look to those data four of those six patients who survived crossovers mm-hmm. so i'm I'm still counting them, counting those crossovers to the standard arm. And still, we had uh, two survivors uh, more than 45 minutes being resuscitated, very long CPRs in the standard group, and they survived nicely. So, uh, and it, as you know, you're know, you, you are also resuscitating a lot of patients. You know whether it's uh, the patients who are for such a long time resuscitated, whether it's, uh, it's rational or not. Yeah. So I and check me if I'm wrong on
0: this interpretation of that of that 45 minute data because I do think that's key when we're talking about especially transporting people with potential harm uh, in transport and we'll we'll kind of get into this a little bit more in a second but um, the patients that had 45 minutes of chest compression, the standard therapy were most likely the very best of that group. I mean, if the EMS is going to choose to do 45 minutes, they're choosing it on the patients that they really want to survive for whatever reason, we might not be able to quantify that, but they chose for whatever reason. So in that arm, those patients had a significantly better outcome if they got the hyperinvasive therapy, even when you include
1: these crossover patients, that's a big deal. Yeah, it is. And uh, if I'm exact, in, in the standard group, we had 55% of patients being resuscitated for more than 45 minutes. So it was 73 patients, absolutely. And in the hyperinvasive, of course, there were more patients. So 73% of patients. In that group. So, so a significant portion of all patients were resuscitating for a long time. Yeah. So what I'm saying by the study also is that uh, you should never give up too early mainly in patients with VF. So as you know, in, uh, in the previous guidelines, I think it was 2010 ERC guidelines, uh, there was a recommendation to stop uh, CPR after 30 minutes of asystole. And there was don't stop CPR until uh, when you have VF. If you have a VF, don't stop the CPR. And I think that's true. In 2015 guidelines, there was no stopping rules, actually. So, and what we are showing is that, uh, in a proper system, in a pro- appropriately resuscitated patients with very intense and very high quality CPR to stop CPR before 45 minutes, uh, it's not good. Not good. At least in patient, at least in patients with VF. Uh, Okay, uh, let's
0: let's jump back a little bit because I want to make sure we we get to the uh, all these these incredibly important points. So you set up your program. This is uh, you said 2006. So five years before you even started to do this trial, you were in the process of training, getting your your cardiologist on board on this, getting your nurses on board on this. Tell me how did you interact with the EMS system? How did you make that system work?
1: The connection between the two. Oh. That's a good question. I, I, I see you are going to uh, to the root. Uh, I worked for Prague EMS for five years. So I knew everybody personally. Uh, the, the key persons from the EMS I knew personally I knew every SOP in, in, in the EMS. I, I you know I cooperated with them for many years. Uh, I, I work both for Prague EMS and, and the other EMS which is around the Prague. So I, I have a quite a good idea how the EMS works actually. So um, it was quite easy for me to persuade them to cooperate. Actually, then we got a grant, so we had a common grant uh, together and a support for the study. So they were stimulated and they were um, they were um, actually part of the large larger team. And um, uh, they were, and for EMS, as as you know, it's uh, always prestigious to cooperate with a with a university hospital to have a publications to be part of the large team. So we succeeded in that. And uh, the paramedics, um, and we we have a despite the fact that we have a kind of um, Austrian type of uh, EMS system, so we do have a physicians uh, pre hospitaly. Uh, we have a very few physicians actually in Prague. And Prague is covered by five or six physicians at the same time. So uh, many of those patients uh, have been resuscitated by paramedics or we call them sometimes super paramedics. And uh, what it makes um, for those people to, uh, to have a protocol to to follow the protocol, it's very helpful for them. So they got um, an exact protocol, what to do, when to call. And uh, the other thing I had, and I didn't mention before, I was connected with the Dispatch Center very closely, actually. And uh, what happened is that um, on my cell phone, I'm receiving receiving from 2010, actually, automatic text messages on every occasion when the telephone assisted cpr is being initiated by the Prague spec center so i was uh, i was alerted and this early alert is very important to set up the team fast so if i got a sms which uh, included actually the time when the telephone-assisted CPR started and the age of the patients, and the age was 45 or 50, I sometimes called to the spa center, is it cardiac arrest, presumably of cardiac cause, and would it be suitable for study? And they said, no, no, this is something else. Or they said, yes, that might be. We are just uh, you know, um, resuscitating telephonically, and we have a crew approaching the scene. I'll call you in 10 minutes, mm. and we'll see. So this is how it worked.
0: Okay, so a uh, t- couple take home points already for this, for what we've gone through. First, bundled therapy. This is a key part of this. We're not talking about a single isolated entity. We're talking about bundling things together. We showed that hyperinvasive strategy, which included ECMO, was probably even better than the results are showing in the first thing, meaning that there was lots of crossover. There was a lot of training that improved bystander or improved pre-hospital resuscitation as well as intra-hospital resuscitation. And now Jan gets to the meat of the second inter, uh, important aspect here, and that is the interface with EMS. Single dispatch, Jan is intimately relate, you know involved with all these these interactions he knows what's going on and he knows the structure of the the ems system so he was able to integrate into that probably better than anyone else in the world so moving on from there we now talked about how we structured ems we've got them to the hospital you've they've been randomized either standardized or hyperinvasive they are now going directly
1: to the cath lab is that correct they go directly to CATLAB, yeah. If randomized to if randomized to hyperinvasive, they go directly to CATLAB. If randomized to standard, and they got ROSC. Uh, we usually waited for 12 lead ECG on scene, and then according to uh, 12 lead ECG, if it was uh, suspicious of coronaries or... And so basically, we took males, all the males, we took to CATLAB because the risk uh, or the chance of uh, having a coronary disease was much higher. Uh, in women and, and in patients who had a uh, PEA or asystole as an initial urgent, because as you know, we enrolled also PEA and uh, asystoles, because when we started the study, it was not as obvious as it's now that uh, for asystoles, it's uh, probably futile to do anything like this. But still, we had the two survivors, actually, in, in study. So um, uh, we, uh, based on that, we either took them to cath lab or to do UNET. It so uh, you, you, hit a, the ER.
0: you hit something that is in my heart, which is that asystole is not necessarily totally dead because we've had asystolic uh, ECMO survivors as well at my hospital. And so that that is an interesting piece of your of your data. But let's let's take a step back. Now, in the cath lab, how many cannulators did you have in your program?
1: When I started, I was single one. Mm-hmm. So I would say I did, I did more than 80, maybe 90 percent of cases in study myself but uh, after 2016 uh, 16, i trained other people so at the moment we have four cannulating persons in the cat lab and since this year we started so-called ecpr uh on-call service so anytime we have one cannulating person who is experienced in cannulation uh for ecpr is on call every day one of us four
0: yeah and i did not realize that Eighty to ninety percent of the hyperinvasive trial, you initiated ECMO on. Yeah, I did.
1: That's incredible. That is that is incredible. But it okay. has a it has a drawback. Zach, it has a drawback. It's not systematic. It's not systematic, and uh, therefore I trained other people because if you want to something to work, uh, uh, it must work in a system. You know. So therefore, I I tried to quit a little bit. Uh, during the study and let other people work Uh, and I trained them to do it so as I said now we are for covering covering the cat lab for those uh, urgent cases. So give me your
0: guidance to the world we are in a a place where some places like my hospital we have a gazillion cannulators places like Dimitri who would recommend a system very similar to yours very few cannulators uh, cardiology-only cardiolators, give us some guidance on how we use these two problems. One is we want it to be a systematic approach everywhere, and two, we have concerns and differences in each city.
1: Yeah. Uh, The system we use uh, is probably uh, very well suited for midterm towns or regions which cover uh, enough people Uh, that you have at least one, two cases per week. Uh, So if you count it per, you know, incidence of cardiac arrest in in Western uh, Western countries, uh, uh, we have 1.25 million people. So we have like 600 cardiac arrests per year in Prague. So approximately 10% of them would be suitable for this. So we've got like... um, 50 to 60 patients per year, which is one to two patients per week, actually. And this is good, because uh, you cannot have too much patients, otherwise you've got a you know, corpse coming to hospital uh, and you don't want this. Uh, so you have to select, definitely. The other thing is that if you want to have this systematic, you, you have to admit those patients and you have to be able to... The cannulation is an important part. But it's not the most important part. Of course, if you if you fail cannulation, you fail the system, you fail um, uh, fail the, you know, the chain of, uh, of the, you know, the interventions you have. And it's extremely important to cannulate fast and well uh, to avoid complications. Therefore, I did it myself, uh, at the beginning so, so many times. And then I trained slow, slowly other people. On the other side, it's just the start of the battle. The battle starts after successful, uh, cannulation and patients, you know, get to multiple organ failures. They have a, a terrible instability, a lot of problems, a lot of problems. But this may be done by phone. And I was on on call basically all the time through the study and consulted with my colleagues. But what I know definitely is, if you are a large hospital and you you have a lot of admissions, uh, it's not possible that you have twenty, thirty, or fifty patients to uh, fifty uh, physicians to cannulate. You have to have a small group to do it and to do it very, um, very uh, frequently. That's important. Therefore, we we have chosen the cardiologist and you should know that I'm cannulating femoral arteries for past 20 years. So um, you must have some experience and intensivists and uh, intensivists are my great friends. And I'm by training also general intensivists. I went first to general intensive care and then I switched to cardiology. So um, uh, nothing against them, but um, the cannulation of femoral artery for ECMO is one thing cannulation femoral arteries for ECMO during cardiac arrest is completely different. It's completely different. You have to be a lot of self-confidence to do it. And uh, the problem of intensivists or generally people who don't cannulate too often is they cannulate too low. They are afraid. And it's completely different to cannulation for blood pressure measurement. If you cannulate the line for the blood pressure you hit the artery you can hit any artery and it works but for ECMO you you have to be sure that you are in the right place and if you put a cannula too too low you got a lot of problems Mm.
0: okay so what I'm hearing is few number of cannulators well trained with lots of experience in endovascular techniques right and that the most important part is not the initiation it's the management afterward
1: um, you know the the initiation the cannulation is a prerequisite of success mm-hmm. so if you can if the patient comes to the cath lab after 45 50 minutes of cpr you have 10 minutes to cannulate you know? mm-hmm. and if you are not done within 10 minutes and if your equipment doesn't work within 10 minutes you lose the patient so that, that's why we train so much and we we started with uh, times like 15 minutes and then we you know mm-hmm. went down and now at the moment, uh, as we do it now, we are usually below ten minutes, and I mean crossing the doors of the cat lab uh, till running echo should be done within ten minutes. If it's not, you are not a good team. Yeah, yeah. And sometimes you fail, but um, the the rate of failure was very low. We failed like in three patients, I guess. Three
0: patients. That's that's incredible. Yeah. Okay. Yeah,
1: um, uh, let's let's real.
0: Quickly, do the inclusion. How did you include versus exclude these patients for
1: hyperinvasive trial? What was the criteria? Uh, there was a general criteria for the study. So they fulfilled criteria for the study, which, were, which was mainly in the witnessed cardiac arrest, estimated age um, uh, over 18 and uh, below 65. But at the end, we had a lot of violations, actually, by the age because the estimation of age was difficult. So we had a, I think, like almost twenty percent more than sixty-five years of age, uh, and then uh, witnessed cardiac arrest. This is most important, and then we can discuss what is it witnessed cardiac arrest because it's not always that you see the patient fall down. Sometimes it was that you hear the noise from the other room that somebody you know crashed, and things like that. So this we consider this to be a witnessed cardiac arrest. Mm. Uh, this is important. And then um, we just had a um, inclusion criteria of five minutes of ACLS on site, at least. In the real study, we had 15 minutes, of course, longer. But I said, okay, at least five minutes, because during those five minutes, you usually have, in VF, two or three defibrillations done, and then you secure airways, and then you start a regular CPR cycles. So, And um, if you look at our time of randomization, it was 25 minutes. Uh, since collapse. So it was nine, eight to nine minutes to reach the scene and 15 minutes on average for initial CPR and then we the randomized patients.
0: So good, so good. Now I know it was also eight to four, right? 8 a.m. to 4 p.m. was when the study criteria yeah. was in. So no overnights. No, uh,
1: no, 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 we were we, we didn't. Uh, no, no, we, we randomized patients. Uh, during uh, the whole day, sometimes we, we could not. there was uh, several cases that we were not available. The team was not available or, or, or the ECMO was not available, but it was not too much. But we, we randomized during the night as well. Oh, okay. I'm sorry.
0: I misread that. Um, okay. Uh, important, really important question here. Um, we got the results from the Oslo study earlier this year. And we see your results and we see them to be dramatically different with maybe some similarities as far as grouping therapy, as far as transport. Um, what are your thoughts? What are your thoughts on why yours was successful?
1: There's been more studies showing that uh, with the transport there might be a problem. And I see the problem in our study as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, because what happens if you decide to transport patient under CPR is that the crews actually stop treating the patients. That's what I've, what I've seen in our study as well. And I was still instructing them, you know, if you put a patient on Lucas, you cannot start, you know, smoking on the side and wait, what happens? Um, you have to treat still. And uh, uh, and what I'm trying now to, to analyze is number of defibrillations after the randomizations, hyperinvasive versus standard. I'm quite sure if we get enough data, because I'm not sure whether we will be able to retrieve all the data, that the number of defibrillations after randomizations, meaning after being put on Lucas and starting the transport, will be lower than those uh, on the in, in the standard arm, and that's the reason. And this is the same as the Brian Grunos study from from the JAMA uh, last year or this year, uh, again showing that uh, if you transport the patients, so you can get a lower percentage of ROSC, you 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 treat less those patients being transported. And um, it is also seen in our study, because if you look at the sustained ROSC uh, achievement in the standard arm, it was, um, I think, more than 50%. Uh, whereas, yes, yeah, uh, 44% in the standard arm, there are only 27% sustained ROSC in the hyperinvasive arm before reaching the hospital or on, on admission to hospital. So in the standard arm, we reached more ROSC by a very intense resuscitation on scene. In the hyperinvasive arm, despite the fact we still reached 30% of cases, reached a sustained ROSC, so they came to hospital, it was less. And this difference was significant uh, in the study. And this is important. So, And this is exactly what, what Brian Grunov published uh, a couple of years in pre-hospital emergency care, that. Uh, you cannot stop your CPR and decide for transport too early, because you need to give a chance a patient to achieve ROSC. But also you cannot do it too long because then you lose the chance to get enough in time for ECPR. And to find the exact time, this is the point <laughs> when to decide. And in the in that study by Brian. Uh, He suggested 16 minutes, as you know. And if you look at our data, our patients were randomized 25 minutes after collapse. And Mm -hmm. we had around 10 minutes, nine to 10 minutes to get on scene. So it was exactly 15 to 16 minutes uh, of advanced cardiac life support on scene when we decided whether to go or not. And I think this is the right time. If you do it longer then you lose a chance um, you know, to get in, 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 to get timely to hospital for ECPR. If you do it too early with transport, you lose the chance to get a risk. mm mm-hmm.
0: Fifteen minutes po- of ACLS that mm-hmm. uh, equates to about twenty five minutes of post or post arrest time
1: right okay. because um, during those 15 minutes uh on the scene you, you should defibrillate at least three times mm-hmm. you should secure the airways and sometimes you got the iv axles mm-hmm. but um I was uh, kind of reluctant to, you know, to insist on IV access because, as you know, uh, what can you do with a patients with VF, Adrenaline, adrenaline doesn't work. Uh, okay, you can try amiodarone. Uh, maybe you can try beta blockers if you, you know, if you if you are a cardiologist or so some people use beta blockers for refractory VF, which is rational, of course. And that's it. So nothing else you can do. And. We also didn't insist on on intubation. He admitted a lot of patients under uh, mm-hmm. under, um, under masks. Mask. So, so um, that's 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 good. Yeah. Okay, I, I definitely agree
0: that there is a downside to transport, and that 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 sweet spot is someplace. I don't know when fifteen minutes seems like a reasonable time, um, but the 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 kind of question here is does this even work? Like does transport with this hyperinvasive kind of idea, does it work? And in your system, it really did. And in the Oslo system, it didn't, or maybe the data suggested it didn't. And I would be interested, but I have a, my own bias, is that part of this was in organizing of the system. Your EMS component there was so crucial because you actually got people on ECMO. So in the Oslo site, very few people ever received the therapy they never got to the end point but you as a as now i realize a one-man machine um you know took them from the beginning all the way to the end uh, and were able to to not to get all of these group therapies in and particularly that last therapy of ecpr um managed do you feel like this organization is a key component to successful ecpr out of hospital cardiac arrest ecpr programs
1: I think this is um, the most important part, yes. This must work. And this is the same as in trauma. Um, as you know, uh, we we had a team almost always because the team was, um, except sometimes during the night where the transport times were short. And uh, and you have to know, you should know that the CATLAB team, including myself, we are not in hospital all the time. So the CATLAB team comes to hospital, uh, so what we did is that the, the nurses and intensivists from the unit was at a cat lab switched on the machine we had a we had a trolley prepared for ecpr cases every day when the cat lab team leaves the hospital so it's prepared them and uh, i i use the assistance of the you know, of the police to get fast to the hospital because I'm living 30 kilometers from the hospital. So we used all the measures to shorten the time and to have a team prepared when patient comes in. And when the patient comes in under CPR, they just put on the cat lab and we jump on the patient and do everything, you know, simultaneously. And every time we we have a roles in the team who is doing what exactly, uh, One is preparing the, the groin. The other one is, you know, preparing the sheets and the virus and everything. So everybody has its role, and it's kind of machinist. Hmm. So you can. This is a type of uh, type of um, activity very similar to pit stop. A pit stop training um, uh, that everybody uh, you know is working knows exactly what to do, and there is no no space for improvisation. Actually, yes, you may improvise if something goes wrong, but uh, routinely you should not.
0: Any um, guidance for all of us out cannulating patients that you have learned in in now these last eight years that we should? You said not heading the common or going in the right place in the common femoral vein or artery.
1: Uh, Anything else? Uh, What I learned is that ultrasound is perfect. I'm using ultrasound, but not too much in a CPR. Because sometimes you are even not able to find the artery by the ultrasound under ongoing CPR. It's pretty difficult. Everything is moving. So um, it's important to, uh, you know, and the most important thing is uh, to have a kind of feeling in in your fingers when you insert a wire. So... To, to, to recognize the, the resistance, which is okay, and the resistance, which is not okay. You can harm a lot uh, by, by an improper uh, insertion of the wire. You can do dissection or whatever. You, you can uh, bend the wire in, in the subcutaneous tissue. If you do that, you lose another five five minutes. Uh, I don't dilate, never. In the CPR, I never dilate subcutaneous tissue. I just puncture, put the wire in, uh, put a stiff wire in and I don't go immediately with the with a cannula. It works very nicely. And wait, wait, cifle, wait. You, you have cifle. you
0: don't dilate at all. Just arterial no. cannula, 17 French? Sure. Seventeen French. More wire 19,
1: over 19, a, 19. over 94 miles. 19 or 25 for miles, yes. Um, I just I just, you know, I'll tell you exactly how I do that. Mm-hmm. If I puncture the artery, I put in the wire. I put in the sheet. I do an angio. So I see exactly whether I'm in the proper uh, place in the artery. Then I put in the stiff wire, cut the tissue subcutaneously so with a knife, and then put in the cannula. That's all. Ooh. No dilations. That's it's just uh, losing time. Yeah. Okay. Both for vein and both for artery.
0: Okay. Okay, this is this is a this is
1: a game changer for me. I'm gonna have to. Yeah, have to it is, and up. I'm doing everything on the chest X-ray on the X-ray. So I'm doing everything on the flora. so I see the wire always when I put in the cannula I see that the cannula goes the, the, uh, the okay way uh, you know sometimes uh, for the vein I sometimes don't do the angio because I, I when I see the wire going uh, right direction I don't need to do angio but um, usually yes I do both angios to be sure that I'm in the vein I'm in the artery sometimes you put the two sheets into the artery this happens no problem just put in the cannula and it's okay hmm okay um
0: last thing just advice for the world advice for you you've you've done this amazing trial you organize this you spent a good part of your life um what should we do next what should be their next steps
1: um, i still think that um we we need a multicenter trial this is a this two trials the RS trial from the matrix and our trial is kind of proof of concept trials and probably uh, if we combine the data we get a good results for eCPR so it means that in in a highly trained uh, and specialized uh, circumstances this works and this is nothing new actually this is known for a long time that eCPR perfectly works for in hospital cardiac arrest uh, I, I could tell you that uh, in our cardiac patients who got arrest in the cath lab, where we do have ECMO for twenty-four over seven, prepared for everything, and that's an important point as well. Uh, I didn't mention there that we had the ECMO machine prepared um, in the cath lab all the time. So basically, nobody, you know, died because he was on ECMO within fifteen minutes. People are trained. Uh, so in a system that works. Properly, as we defined in previous sentences, uh, it's helpful probably and helps people to survive. And now we have to prove that it's transferable to other circumstances, to larger cities, to cities with long transport. But if you don't get a patient on ECMO before 60 minutes, it doesn't work. It's just, um, you know, it's the life, you know, if, if you resuscitate more than 60 minutes, it may not work. The other thing is, if you look at our data, we had um, five survivors with uh, initial pH less than 6.8. Mm. So you cannot use the lab data to decide whether you put a patient on ECMO like or not. So we didn't use that. Uh, we didn't use any any lab values. We didn't use, uh, yes, we, we use ETCO2 a little bit. Uh, you cannot use NERS, you cannot use pH, you cannot use lactate because um, sometimes it works, sometimes no. not. Statistically, yes. For individual patient, not. So just do it. And if you want one advice, I learned uh, that it's for life, it's not just for CPR. If you're able to say yes, meaning putting patients on ECMO during the CPR, you have to learn how to say no so you have to be able to stop the therapy uh, you know, fast, not keeping patients with bridge to nowhere for 14 days. Mm. And uh, you know you have to you have to, uh, you have to you know, be able to withdraw the life, life-sustaining therapies fast, to indicate patients for organ donors. It was that a byproduct of the study? We had a lot of donors in the mm. had farm. So, as I said, what means the yes of a woman who is not able to say no, you know? And the same for males, of course, to be uh, appropriate in this world. Oh, my
0: goodness. So, such good stuff. Jan, I could talk with you for, for days. All right, I'm going to sum up what we what we said. Uh, Jan Bolomovic and his team, his Cath Lab team, which I'll say, uh, he introduced the hyperinvasive trial this last week. The hyperinvasive trial showed 32% of survival in this group therapy of putting on patients on ECMO, but also transporting them early, putting them, intercooling them pre-hospitally and putting on mechanical chest compression devices. Within this study, which we have seen so much in other places too, that once you start training people, the rate of regular resuscitation goes up. The rate of survival improves and our resuscitation quality improves. And Jan showed that in his paper as well. Um, We talked about cannulation techniques. We talked about how organization of the system is so critical and that potentially moving forward, we need to limit the number of cannulators we do and have them be highly trained, not only in the initiation phase, but also in the management phase afterward. Jan, thank you so much for dedicating your life uh, to making this, this one next set of data points for us so key and so so useful for us moving forward for all of us out there that are that have our fledgling programs trying to um trying to do what you do
1: okay thank you very much for your words and for for the inviting me i will continue working on that it's um uh, that's um uh, uh, exciting uh, scientific area and we need to continue thank you very much